You're about to hear a preview of Partially Examined Life supporter exclusive content. To learn how to get the whole thing, check out partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. This is the Partially Examined Life episode 330, part three, still discussing either or, reading some of the Diap Salmata, the refrains, but it's not a close read. We're not reading all of them. It's just, it's just our favorites. We've got the whole, whole crew such as it was. I shouldn't say the whole crew. Not the whole crew. Hey, <laughs> Seth is here, is my point. You're right. All right, who We're, wants to start with one? I wanted to go back to one that we missed. Tested advice for authors. Page 19. PDF page 40. One carelessly writes down one's personal observations, has them printed, and in the various proofs, one will eventually acquire a number of good ideas. Therefore, take courage... You who have not dared to have something printed, do not despise typographical errors, and to become witty by means of typographical errors may be considered a legitimate way to become witty. That one sounds quite Nietzschean, the address to the reader. You who have not yet dared. So why would one become witty by way of a typographical error? And one way to think about this is just that, you know, you can, thinking here of Freud and slips of the tongue and things like that, one can betray one's unconscious or instinctual life that way. Perhaps that's also why I thought it sounded quite Nietzschean. And wit, of course, is founded on that. It's founded on the same sort of principle of slippage, double entendres, things like that. So is it a legitimate way to become witty if you do it unintentionally, let's say, suppose if that's the meaning? If the slip is unintentional, if it unintentionally reveals your underlying intention, it sounds like it's praising a more instinctual, passionate, less careful approach to being a philosopher, let's say, being an author. Right. It's the million monkeys, million typewriters approach. Carelessly write down your personal observations, have them printed, and eventually you'll acquire a number of good ideas. So if you haven't done anything yet, don't strive for perfection. Don't try to be profound. Just simply produce And if in the production you make mistakes, you may inadvertently not just come up with a good idea, but say something witty and amusing. In the next aphorism, he praises imperfection. So this is related to the typographical error. Everything, the imperfection in everything human is that its aspirations are achieved only by way of their opposites. So I think this is related, but go ahead, Mark. Now I'm trying to connect those things. Yeah, what if this whole thing, this tested advice for authors is ironic? It's not going to actually make you become witty. It is when carelessly writes down one's personal observation. I mean, this sounds like if, if his real advice is craft your art, asshole. Don't just give us this bullshit that you're spitting out thinking like, oh, I'm just a genius. I can just say whatever I want and I can improv and it will be wonderful and you'll all lap it up. Yeah, okay, maybe you'll occasionally get some good ideas, but that is just a matter of chance just like a typographical error might also produce something that is good. Neither one is a particularly good way of creating things. Mm. So that's the opposite of my reading. I think he's endorsing it. And again, not just because it's a random accident, but because it reveals something else. So, And this relates to the opposites in the next section. And of course, opposites, that's the way irony works. So in some sense, it sounds like endorsing wittiness is not unrelated to endorsing irony, which is not unrelated to endorsing an unconscious or semi-unconscious opposite to what you're actually saying. So the melancholy have the best sense of the comic. 
the dissolute often have the best sense of the moral. If you want to convey an, an ethical ideal in a text, you don't simply have to say it straight out. That can be very boring. You can do something like what Kierkegaard does and be very ironic about it. You can use opposites and other forms of irony to convey what you mean. Mm-hmm. Its aspirations are achieved only by way of their opposites. That doesn't exactly mean the same thing as what he says, the melancholy have the best sense of the comic. What does that mean? You know, So if I want to be perfectly disciplined, it would be better if I go through a phase, like Augustine supposedly did, of being completely undisciplined, and then I will be all the holier once I snap back into place. Is that literally what he would might mean by achieve by way of their opposites? I mean, that seems like that might just be an idiosyncratic story and not necessarily be endemic to virtue, for instance. I mean, I think you might be right that an Augustinian reading of this is actually not bad. I recall that Mackey points out, and again, we have to keep in mind that Kierkegaard is, you know, responding. He's got Hegel in the background this whole time. You know, in the Hegelian dialectic, cliched as that particular, you know, as it might be, you have the opposite, you have the thesis, you have the antithesis, right? And then tension between the two of them propels you forward with the synthesis. And this second aphorism here is in one sense pointing towards that, that you have to have an opposition in order to be able to fully understand and appreciate, which is also the whole consciousness, self-consciousness sort of thing. But you might also read it not from a Hegelian synthesis perspective, but really from just a straight up, if you want to understand the value of piety, you have to be impious at some point. If you want to understand morality, you have to be dissolute. Or maybe it's you should appreciate that it may take somebody who's dissolute to actually appreciate what is moral. Mm-hmm. It's not just about making a transition from one state to another in one's character. These are components of all of our, we all have them in our character. They're moments, if you want to think about it in Hegelian terms. And so they're not just temporally sequential. And if you want to be funny, you certainly are tapping into the melancholic portion of your character because humor works off of tragic premises. You start with a tragic or a sad idea and then you twist it. And if we think about this ethically, I mean, I think there's a deep way to think about it ethically such that an ethical aspiration, right? If it's if the idea is to become a good person or to acquire some other more specific ethical quality, it can't just be that here's the rule and don't think about your urge to do something else, mm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. It reminds me of our Brothers Karamazov episode where Zazma's advice basically is, is to be able to be engaged with that other part of oneself, even if you are aspiring to be a good person, you can't just not know about all your aggression and hate and any other, your lust or anything else about you. That is not so great. You got to be aware of it. And the more aware of it, the better. Being ethical is not just being uh, repressing. A related one of these is on the next page. It is cause for alarm to note with what hypochondriac profundity Englishmen of an earlier generation have spotted the ambiguity (laughs) basic to laughter. Thus, Dr. Hartley has observed that when laughter first makes its appearance in the child, it is a nascent cry that is excited by pain or a suddenly arrested feeling of pain repeated at very short intervals. What if everything in the world were a misunderstanding? 
what if laughter really were weeping? So is that just a comment about irony and the line between making a joke about something and crying about something? I mean, those are just different coping mechanisms to deal with the same thing. Well, they're related, though. They're not just different coping mechanisms. So I think mm-hmm. you know, you know, if we think of laughter, if a joke involves a tragic, and I'm not going to defend this thesis right now, but if a joke involves some sort of tragic premise, isn't it so terrible that X, then the comedian does something with that to kind of relieve us of that idea or to make that idea more palatable. And then we get some kind of release out of it and we make this weird noise. If you think about it, it's really strange what we're doing. Why is it we're doing it? What is, how would you explain it to some other species that didn't laugh? How would you, it's like trying to get into the minds of chimps who do something similar with their calls. It seems weird and nonsensical, their version of laughter, and it must look that way from, from the outside. But in any case, there's some sort of discharge happening in laughter as there is in weeping. And they're both not unrelated, I think, to sad or distressing or anxiety producing circumstances. So there's tension and then there's, there's release. And I think it's really brilliant to say to the, the idea that laughing is like all these little cries that are arrested before they can develop into a full cry. And then it's just done in succession. That's a really brilliant way of thinking about it. Does that go with what if everything in the world were a misunderstanding? I mean, is that just saying that there is this relation that you're pointing out and people do not realize that they see, they see that these are different or is he actually, I thought there was another interpretation there, but (laughs) at the beginning of the chapter, he has, I don't even know what you call it, an opening quote before he gets into the text. Greatness, knowledge, renown, friendship, pleasure, and possessions. All is only wind, only smoke. To say it better, all is nothing. An epigraph. There epigraph, you yes. So if we recall the thesis that the esthete has to find a way to find pleasure or amusement in whatever comes his or her way, right? That was one of the principles of the aesthetic position is that whether you're suffering pain or whether you're in, it's something enjoyable, the point is, is that you're not reacting to what's happening. Instead, you're mastering your response to some extent. And this here seems to be in that vein of what if everything does mean nothing? Then to laugh at it would be the same in some sense as to weep at it. Yeah, that could be the misunderstanding. You thought there was something, but there's nothing. It's all smoke. I think the critique is, you know, I think Mark, as you pointed out, one possible meaning of the critique is that people don't understand this relation between the whole comedy equals tragedy plus time theory. And I think that's generally true. Even people who have thought about it, I think sometimes don't fully see the relation. The idea that laughter is just a manic defense, for instance, as some psychoanalysts might think, that it in a way is just a suppressing of sadness or a way to avoid sadness or something like that. When it actually incorporates sadness in some way that Kierkegaard, I think, is kind of brilliantly getting at here. If that sounds like the kind of thing that you want to hear more about, then please go to partiallyexaminelife.com slash support. Thanks for listening.